Hi, I'm Sam Ballerton Crimes. And I'm Alice Bellat. In this episode of Welcome, Cameo Daly takes us to the Kimberley in the northwest corner of Australia and along the Gibb River Road to meet Aboriginal people, cattle station owning white settlers, and a few people who don't neatly fit either of those categories. Yeah, Narinian people call this area Willingan. The people we meet in this episode really exemplify how complicated Aboriginal settler history is in this country. We hear about the horrific forms of violence that Aboriginal people were subject to, including being forcibly removed from their families. We also hear about how the whitefellas and blackfellas muddled through still living together on the Gibb. Cameo talks in this episode about coexistence. This is, in one sense, the practical reality of the place. Cattle station owners, tourists, tour operators, traditional owners of that country and Aboriginal people from other parts of Australia all live and work and travel along the road. But they have to struggle through not only the brutal history of that region, but also the realities of current laws. Narinian Aboriginal people have what we call in Australia native title, what is referred to in other countries as land rights. But native title rights coexist with the legal property rights of the cattle stations and the practical reality is that it's the stations whose rights take precedence. So this episode asks the really difficult questions about if and how, in a context where settler rights take precedence, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people can coexist in a way that is fair or just. And as with our show overall, you won't find any easy answers here. But lots of thought-provoking stories and questions. Let's listen. I think a lot of Australians don't know that history because I know I definitely didn't until I came up into the Kimberley and then you're exposed to it. Um, and because living in a city, like, you, you do, you, you end up in your little bubble and your your life and this is how things are and... And you don't step outside of that box until you either travel and then you get a little taste of it or you you go somewhere and experience it. Today we travelled to one of Australia's most iconic and remote regions. Located in the northwest corner of Australia, the Kimberley is famous for its spectacular scenery. Rocky outcrops, cascading waterfalls and rare plants and animals draw many visitors each year. These dramatic landscapes have also been the site of brutal and traumatic histories for Aboriginal people at the hands of white settlers. In 2004, Aboriginal people had their underlying rights to land recognised over a large swathe of the Kimberley. This recognition came under Australia's Native Title Act, which is often touted as delivering direct benefit to Indigenous people. But the Kimberley is also covered by massive cattle stations, most of which are owned and managed by non-Indigenous people under forms of long-term lease. These are known in Australia as pastoral leases. In recent years, though, mostly for financial reasons, pastoral stations have developed tourist facilities, allowing them to generate extra revenue. In the way that native title recognition works in Australia, Indigenous rights and the rights of pastoral lease owners are required to coexist. Coexistence is tricky. Aboriginal people have already been dispossessed and the mechanics of negotiating access can reaffirm that dispossession. 
This negotiation requires Aboriginal people to contact pastoralists to access land covered by cattle stations. What this means is that pastoralists, whether keeping cattle or hosting tourists, continue to have the defining say in how land is used and by whom, maintaining and reaffirming colonial control. In this episode, we hear stories about how recognition and coexistence operate as a ruse. Today we take a trip along the Gibb River Road in the Kimberley, a 650-kilometre dirt track that joins the towns of Wyndham and Kununurra in the east to Broome and Derby in the west. We hear stories from people who call this place home, and we discuss the impact of colonial history on relations between Aboriginal people, settlers and their descendants. Here's Donald Campbell. He's a Naranyan man and one of the traditional owners of this part of Australia. I'm Donald Campbell from Wyndham. And I'd like to tell you, tell some the story about my life, just a little bit. How I got to here and where I'm going from here and all that. I'm Cami O'Daly. I'm an anthropologist, and since 2013, I've been working in the Kimberley. What motivates my research is the desire to better understand how Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people's lives are interwoven through history and how they form relations in contemporary Australia. Donald, who you heard from just now, was a key witness in a native title claim that covered this part of the Kimberley. We sat down together in the cool air conditioning of the Wyndham Library to record this interview. Donald's a keen history buff, and he took the opportunity to flip through the small collection of books about the Kimberley that the library holds. Anyway, I was born here in Wyndham at the Wyndham Native Hospital. Nothing left of it now. They... When I was a baby, my mum took me back to Karanji Station which is 180 or 150 miles out of Wyndham on the Gibberabba Road. That's where I grew up. Karunji is one of the many cattle stations that front the Gibb River Road. Most of the cattle stations were established in the early 1900s and have had pastoralists come and go. Much of the time that I've spent in the Kimberley has been with Naranyan Aboriginal people, including Donald, travelling along the road. On our trips, Donald narrates and animates the road, describing Aboriginal story places and recalling the memories he's made, both as a stockman and more recently as part of the native title claim. Each twist and turn of the dusty track holds a story. One of the places that we usually stop on the Gib, as it's usually called, is the jump up. Driving from the eastern towns of Kununurra and Wyndham, the jump up is the last place you get mobile phone reception until you reach the other end of the road on the floodplains outside Derby. At the jump up, we both make a flurry of last minute texts and calls to friends and family. I'm going offline for a few days, don't worry about me, we tell them. A couple of years ago, the Willingen Aboriginal Corporation which Donald is involved with, put up a metal sign here. The sign sets out in both English and the Naranyan language 
that the country we're entering belongs to Nyaranyam people and that the rights of Nyaranyam people to that country have been recognised under the Native Title Act. Many tourists stop at this spot to read the sign and take pictures of the nearby Coburn Ranges, or Dadaru as it's known. But anyway, I can't say a lot of things bad about the place. I sort of grew up there and I got a lot of childhood memories of that place with all my family and I ended up going back there working. Donald's father, Jack Campbell, was an Aboriginal man from Queensland and head stockman at Karanji Station from the 1950s onwards. At that time, Aboriginal labour was an integral part of the cattle industry in northern and central Australia. My old man took me out on the horse, mushroomed with him, he wouldn't leave me in the camp at the station. That's the first time I ever went to stride a horse. But, uh, yeah, they, my father was from Camoil in Queensland. The border town, he rode from over there with a lot of mates of his and they all parted in window. Donald's father, Jack, was one of a number of renowned stockmen in the Kimberley at this time, highly respected by both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people for his horsemanship and skill at working cattle. Donald's mother was a Nyaranyam woman from the local Aboriginal group. Yeah, anyway, my mum was from the tribe out there and half of Forest River and all that, but... She was born on Forest River, but I think my grandfather came from that way too as well. Donald's references to where people are from are powerful indicators of Aboriginal people's spiritual connections and knowledge, including his own. It situates them in relation to country. For Donald, the transmission of much of this knowledge took place at Karanji Station, which had a vibrant community life centred around three camps of Aboriginal people. Through most of the 20th century, Nyaranyam people moved in and out from the three camps as it suited them. The Kimberley remained sparsely settled through much of the 20th century, notorious for violent white men that travelled through the region killing Aboriginal people and kidnapping Aboriginal women and children. To avoid the unpredictability of this violence, Aboriginal people sometimes settled at pastoral stations to take advantage of the relative safety offered to them by station owners. Otherwise, they preferred to be living elsewhere on their country, unencumbered by non-Aboriginal people, hunting and gathering and conducting ceremony. Anyway, as I grew up as a little boy, I just, like every other normal kid, just running around, swimming, Going to the yard when there was activities at the yard with cattle. And, uh, like, it was, I I had all my family there. My aunts and uncles and friends and whatnot. More or less a family setting. And wonderful time in my youth I had there. And these people talking about stock life is, stock life is a good life, but a very hard life. Very hard There's a lot about Karanji that Donald remembers fondly. But at the same time, the exploitation of Aboriginal people as labour also made it a hard life. The violence of white men at this time and Aboriginal people's fear of such violence meant that pastoralists were able to coerce Aboriginal people to work. Rather than being paid money for their work, 
Most Aboriginal people were instead given rations, flour, tea and sugar, and sometimes beef, as well as basic supplies such as blankets and clothes. These rations and supplies supplemented what people were able to collect and hunt for on their country. Being able to find food was getting harder though, as the introduced cattle with their heavy hooves and devouring mouths did increasing damage to Aboriginal people's food sources. The incredible endurance of Naranyan people through this brutal time would become vital to the eventual success of their native title claim. It allowed them to prove a continuous, unbroken attachment to their country, which is required under native title law. There are lots of ways that Aboriginal people learn about their country and can prove these kinds of connections, not all of them from living on it. Aboriginal people living in towns and cities away from their country have developed ways of storytelling to ensure that younger generations learn about their land. But for Donald, it was because of his time living among kin at the station that he was able to develop a deep knowledge of Naranyan language and culture. Was that native title, that was a pretty important thing for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, like with old people in our one back there, I, I didn't want to disappoint my old people. This reference to old people is to Donald's ancestors and also to the other Aboriginal people who were involved in the native title claim. For many Naranyan people, native title recognition was hard fought. Many, like Donald, had hopes that the recognition would reconfigure relationships with the non-Indigenous people that they live alongside. But one of the machinations of native title legislation is that even though Aboriginal people's rights are pre-existing and underlying, they do not override those of pastoral leaseholders. And in fact, even after they've been successful in a native title claim, Aboriginal people must negotiate with pastoralists to access land. In the Kimberley, a long time elapsed between when the claim was first lodged in the 1990s and when it was successfully determined in 2004. So in spite of leading the process, many older Nyaranyan people did not get to enjoy its success. But it was a funny thing that as soon as we got the native tell them all my mob, the own mob of mine, they all died. They just drifted off one by one. You know, there's a lot of things were left left unanswered. And a lot of things, a lot of places, I don't know, you know, there's any disappointment bad that native title. My old people just dying off on me like that. While Donald and others were active contributors to the native title process because they'd been able to stay on their country, albeit on a pastoral station, not all Aboriginal people had this option. Government policy from the early 1900s to the late 1960s meant that children of part Aboriginal descent 
for instance, with one Aboriginal parent and one white parent, were often taken away from their family by the government and placed into government-managed missions and cattle stations. These people, referred to in Australia as the Stolen Generation, were separated from kin and their own language and culture. It was a deeply destructive form of colonial violence. Not only were children separated from their families, but many of them didn't get to learn about their country and culture. Later on, this meant that they weren't included in the native title process. Ida Moore, now aged in her 80s, is one of these people. Was that your father? My, my was... mother was Aboriginal and my father was white. And he was one of the station owners, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you remember him? Yeah. Yeah? Scotty Southern. Yeah. And yeah. he had that Karunji station then, yeah? He had Karunji station and Dave Russ, him and Dave Russ. As a young child, Ida sustained burns from a campfire at Karunji and was taken from the station into Wyndham for medical treatment. After she recovered, Ida was then removed from her kin into government care. The reason for Ida's removal was that she was, as she puts it, coloured rather than Aboriginal. I asked her if there were many people like this at Karunji. Yeah, nobody was there, only me. I'm the only coloured person was in Karunji Station, I think. All Aboriginal people. She was then taken to a government-owned cattle station named Moolabula, 400 kilometres to the south. Was there a lot of kids from Karunji there at Moolabula? No, there was a lot of kids from different places, different stations. A lot of kids were still girls had... Their own dormitory and the boys had their own dormitory. Ida's reference to dormitories gives a sense of the scale of this removal policy. Across remote Australia, thousands of Aboriginal children were removed from their families to live in these facilities, sometimes run by religious orders or the government itself. The justification for the removal of children of mixed descent was their education and the goal that they would be assimilated into the broader society. Mullabulla was established in 1910 with the paternalistic aspiration that it could be run by Aboriginal people and those of mixed descent to be self-sufficient. But the education that the Aboriginal kids received was intermittent and basic. We were all sent from different stations, you know, to go there, to go to school. And we didn't have much schooling. Biggest teacher, you know, there was... Teachers to come and go all the time. Away from her own family and culture, Ida was forced to learn English and the language of Aboriginal people already living at Moolabulla Station, which was different to that of her own Yarranian family. And did they let you? Did you speak language when you were living at the Moolabulla? No. No. Just all those kids spoke English. Yeah, and then where did you speak what they what they were speaking on the station? What language and what it what did what it was what it mean and all this? What they was asking for and all this. So we had to learn 
all the stations had different different language. They didn't have one language, they had different ones from different stations. After leaving Mulabula in her early 20s, Ida spent most of her life living in country towns, often working as a cook, including at the town pub in Wyndham. To do basic things in town, Ida needed to carry evidence of her citizenship. Recently, while visiting her at her house in Wyndham, Ida unexpectedly handed me a small piece of cardboard. So this is your certificate of citizenship? Hmm. Where to go with that to a pub? Hmm. They wouldn't serve you otherwise if you didn't have that. They wouldn't serve you a drink, any sort of drink in the pub. So this says Western Australia Natives Citizenship Rights Act 1944 to 1951, number 666, Certificate of Citizenship, and then it has your name written on it. Mm-hmm. So it's a ma- you've kept this all this time, Ida. Mm-hmm. It's wearing out now from showing it to people. Mm. <laughs> Up until 1971, when the Act was repealed, people like Ida needed to apply for documentation that showed their citizenship. They had to show these documents if they wanted to, say, open a bank account, buy a car, or other pretty basic kinds of activities. Mm, if we had, to, we had to have it with us all the time. <laughs> now they're everybody free now. But the application required a number of conditions be met including proving that you'd severed all ties with your Aboriginal family and friends. For this reason, lots of Aboriginal people didn't apply for these documents. Others stayed living on stations or government reserves, unable to enjoy the basic provisions of town life, like a drink at the pub or having a bank account. Again, the pastoralists and government officials took care of any necessary personal administration on their behalf. Being considered a citizen on the condition of disassociating with family and friends gives a sense of the bittersweet nature of formal recognition for Aboriginal people. In 1955, the West Australian government sold Mullabulla, where Ida had lived as a child. The new owner gave the station's 200 Aboriginal residents less than a day to pack their belongings. For the time it was a government station, Mullabulla was able to reinvest any profits it made into providing food and material to support its residents, but the new owner wasn't interested in running the station this way. What happened, all the, all the little ones they send on the truck and the big ones they send them all down to Derby or Broome, somewhere down there. They send all the kids down there. Put them on the truck and off they went. Closed the place down and sold the place. The forced relocation of Aboriginal people onto cattle stations to work as labour and then their dumping into towns when stations were sold or became unprofitable shows just how powerful pastoralists were at determining what happened to Aboriginal people. For Ida and others, Having to adjust to town life around non-Aboriginal people was not easy. It often required them to deny or actively give up their own Aboriginal identity. 
This has itself created divisions between Aboriginal people with different life experiences and sometimes cynicism about each other's motivations. I asked Ida what she thought about Native Title. Some of them was getting their land back just for nothing, just for their money. Not going back. I didn't like that. They just got the money and didn't go back. And stations just staying with nobody in them. If I was a lot younger, I'd go back to Crandy Station. Mostly, there is no direct financial benefit to native title recognition, particularly in places like the Kimberley, where pastoral leases are still the dominant form of land tenure. But for people like Ida, whose lives have been shaped by profoundly damaging government policies, negotiating their relationships with their Aboriginal kin and to their country has been tricky. Much of this is bound up with who feels included in the community, in the formal processes of recognition, and how people judge the entitlements of others. Then there's also the demands of native title as a legal process, which sets out how people demonstrate their connection to country. Unsurprisingly, this has resulted in uncertainty, divisions and suspicion about who's ended up with what and how. For most Aboriginal people, what remains really important is to maintain their spiritual and familial connections to country and to find ways to be engaged with that country. This is about getting opportunities to go out on country from their homes in towns and communities and to be part of businesses being set up on their land. In the next two stories, we'll hear more about these enterprises why an increasing number of stations have taken on tourism to supplement their income and how this has impacted on how Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people coexist in the landscape. Hey guys, how are we all? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, how's the trip going? Oh, great. Great, great. Well, well, oh. looking after you? I'm there for you. Yeah. We call it the, the Outback Massage. Yeah, Get it for free along the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Logan and Larissa Walker moved to the Kimberley in the 2000s and are among a newer generation of white station managers. They run Ellen Bray Station, a little further west along the Gibb River Road from Karunji Station, where Ida was born and Donald grew up. Ellen Bray is owned by a Melbourne-based family, but is run by Logan and Larissa as both a cattle station and a tourist enterprise. So me and my wife have the privilege to manage Ellenbray. It's just a small hobby farm, of course, like most of them in the area, about 980,000 acres. <laughs> I do feel a bit hemmed in. Most of my neighbours have got a million. I've only got 980,000, you know. Saturday night, when you want to turn the music up, have a party, you've got to worry about the neighbours, who are 130 kilometres in either direction. Um, we've been here for the last four years. Now, it is still a working cattle station and it has been since 1965 when it was taken up as a pasture release. It was one of the last pasture releases to be taken up in the area. So it, um, it wasn't the pick of the land, it was what was left behind. At that time, Aboriginal workers on horseback drove the cattle from Ellenbray a couple of hundred kilometres into the town of Wyndham to be sold. 
Without fences to keep the cattle contained, this was a really labour-intensive exercise. Making sure the cattle stayed together as a group, ensuring that they had access to water and resting them overnight. Now back in 65, there was a meatworks at Wyndham. If it had four legs and a tail and a head, you'd get paid for it. Obviously the industry's changed quite a bit now. So, you know, a small family might have been able to scratch out an existence. It was also cheap labour back then. You know, the local Indigenous stockmen would come in and work for rations and things like that. And also a lot of people came to the Kimberley just for the experience to come out and do it. And they'd go out on horseback for months at a time, you know, living, living in camp and things like that. So it was a different, different place when Ellenbrae was taken up. After 1968, there was a change to pastoral labour law. The change removed a clause that had allowed Aboriginal stockmen to be paid less than non-Indigenous workers. The effect was transformative, ending decades of what equates to slave labour on the part of Aboriginal people. But it wasn't easy to undo the decades of poverty created by exploitation most Aboriginal families have not been able to catch up economically with their non-Indigenous counterparts. Impacts of changes in labour law were not the only things happening at that time. The West Australian government massively increased the rent paid on pastoral leases, cattle prices went down and the industry went into sustained downturn. Many stations were virtually abandoned by their owners during the 1970s and 1980s. As work dried up, Aboriginal workers on stations moved into towns. Many shifted into Aboriginal communities, including some along the Gibb River Road, which had been set up by government. For the stations on the Gibb that did stay running, their operations changed significantly. Obviously these days it's a different industry. Um, to do anything with the cattle, you obviously got to round them up. There's not cheap stockmen for 100 bucks a day anymore. These guys are you know, demanding a decent wage like they should. They use helicopters, you know, bull catchers, motorbikes, portable yards. It's all very labour intensive and very expensive. For us to go out and muster Ellenbrae efficiently, and I mean, you know, you need to have the helicopter working every day, so you need to have two sets of yards, you need to have enough trucks, enough men to be shifting stuff, you need to be building the roads as you go. It costs around $20,000 a day. The coexistence of native title and pastoralism mean that cattle stations can continue to operate regardless of the desires of Aboriginal people. Some Aboriginal people do continue to work in the industry or in other jobs. Logan's wife Larissa explains. But there's certainly plenty of opportunities for them. And, and then I think also not only that, with these tourism places along the Gibb River Road, it's also created jobs for for rangers as well so they can be behind the scenes whether you know it's um the fire management weed management that kind of thing but actually not many aboriginal people are now employed along the gib and compared to the past most stations are run with a tiny skeleton staff and only during the dry months of the year but it's more than that so i think that's also for us as well, that um, trying to understand, because um, it's completely different cultures, absolutely, and um, and trying to understand um, the Aboriginal culture compared to ours. All of these stations are really isolated and require workers to be away from their family and friends for long periods of time. But that's not all. Unsurprisingly, given the history. Many Naranyan people have mixed feelings about working for non-Aboriginal people. 
and some station owners don't try. There's still a lot of racism towards Aboriginal people. So it's not so straightforward as just providing jobs, and some station managers acknowledge this, including Larissa. Because it was quite a brutal history at the beginning, and we need to face the facts, you know, we've done the damage. And so therefore, um, it, but it, it's, it, it's a process that's going to take a long time, and it's in its infancy, um, but it's great, it's a start, so it's not something that's going to happen overnight. From Ellenbray, we continue about 100 kilometres down the Gibb River Road and camp the night at Gibb River Station. The relationships between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people in the Kimberley cattle industry are not just between Aboriginal traditional owners and white station managers. A notable part of the industry has been the intimate relationships between station owners and Aboriginal people, relations of interdependency marked by friendships and sometimes romance. These often enduring intercultural relationships sometimes resulted in the establishment of intergenerational pastoral empires run by descendants who identify as Aboriginal. As both Aboriginal people and cattle station owners, their experiences represent yet another example of the complexity of coexistence in the Kimberley. This was the case at Gibb River Station and at our last stop on this journey, Mount Elizabeth Station. We meet Peter Lacey and his wife, Pat. I'm Peter Lacey, from Mount Elizabeth Station. We just sold the place and moved into Kununurra. Um, Yeah, it's been a bit of a battle out there in the old days, but with the roads not being the best, but the things improve all the time now. And you're getting better all, all the time. Makes it a bit easier to get around. Mount Elizabeth was developed as a cattle station by Peter's father, Frank Lacey. Yeah, Dad took up the lease in 1945. And, uh, yeah, we just worked it since then. Yeah. My father did a lot of droving in the old days into um, Broome and Wyndham and Catherine. Though others had come before him, Frank was one of a small number of men to really stick it out on the Gibb River Road during this time. It's not always clear what attracted these men to the Kimberley, but certainly a sense of adventure was part of it. Um, Dad originally came from New Zealand. He um, came across, he was in the Navy and... He um, took leave in Australia and um, oh, the Dad had um, rheumatic fever pretty bad and uh, the doctors advised him to go into a dry climate um, if he could, so he come to the outback of Australia <laughs> in the dry enough. Newly arrived station owners rapidly came into contact with Aboriginal people from across the region in all kinds of ways not just as stockmen. Peter's mother was an Aboriginal woman who met Frank while she was working in Broome. Mum's from Broome. She, um, yeah, she, she was a cook at one of the hotels there. And Dad used to drove, drove the cattle in the, <clears throat> go to the pub for a feed and he had this feed of steak and kidney pie one night and 
he said to the girl serving, I'd like to meet the cook. <laughs> so eventually you got to meet Mum and that's where they first met. In the 1940s and 1950s, the Lacey's had five children, including Peter. Because his mother's family connections are to a different part of the Kimberley to Mount Elizabeth Station, Peter and his siblings are not traditional owners of this part of the Kimberley, but they are Aboriginal. As Aboriginal people, Peter's mother and then Peter himself, when he took over the lease, were tasked with managing the complex intercultural relations on the station. This was pretty important, given that local Nyaranyan people were the workforce that ran the station. Had um, a few workers there. They, they were still nomadic those days. They used to walk out of the bush and pull in there. And it was easy food, I suppose, to do a bit of work for Tucker. And, um, and they'd wake up one morning, one morning, they wouldn't be there. They'd just move on to the next place or go bush. Um, sort of nomadic tribe. At their house, Peter and Pat offer me a cup of tea and biscuits. They show me photos of social events in the area from an exhibition about the Gib River Road curated by their neighbour, Vanessa Russ. Some of the photographs depict Peter as a young stockman with broad hat, button-up shirt and cowboy boots. Other photographs show the vibrant social life of the cattle stations during the 1960s and 1970s. Many of the photographs depict the station workers, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, and those from other stations that would come together for birthdays, weddings and other celebrations. Even the weekly mail plane was an opportunity to get together. Well, one of my big events was mail day, because mail plane used to come to Gibb River. We never had an airstrip at the time. And we'd go over there for the mail and all the Russ kids were really like brothers and sisters, really. <laughs> we'd see once a week and, yeah, we'd go over there and have the night there and then go back the next day. It was about 20 miles away from, from us. Experiences with Aboriginal people living at the camp and in the area were defining memories for Peter's wife, Pat, who came to the Kimberley from the southern part of Western Australia to work as a governess in 1986. Um, it was supposed to be a nine-month plan, and I had a wonderful time there. I learnt so much, and we used to go on these beautiful picnics and spend you know, a lot of time with the Aboriginal families. And, um, yeah, then... Uh, I said goodbye to everyone and went home uh, with a view to going teaching. And then Peter followed me down to Perth. And the story is there was one old Aboriginal man who reckons you've got to go and bring her back because she's a good missus. <laughs> so, yeah, we got married 12 months later. These experiences of friendship are part of what drew Pat back though Peter also played a part. Pat described the kinds of intimacy that formed at the station. I think maybe because there wasn't so many people at Mount Elizabeth, like there was just the Lacey family and some of the grandchildren and then the community people. So we did everything together. Everything was shared. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think even then when we started tourism, 
a lot of them were involved in it. Over the years, and as pastoralism became less financially secure, Pat's role on the station became more essential. As at Ellenbray, down the road, where Logan and Larissa spent much of their time providing hospitality to paying visitors, Pat developed a tourist enterprise at Mount Elizabeth. This included arranging Nyaranyam people to show visitors cultural sites at the station. Like we trained a few of the men up and they'd take tours out and that. And, um, I mean, it, it was hard to go out. It's hard for anyone to go out with a group of strangers and have to talk to them, you know, put yourself on the platform. But over time, there was three guides that we had that really did a good job and people just loved them because they could tell them how they saw the country and what they did in the country in the old days and that. So it became very popular, especially with the overseas tourists. As the pastoral industry throughout the Gibb River Road had at one time been dependent on Aboriginal workers, so too cultural tourism. Of course, this opens up tricky questions about who most benefits from the sale of Aboriginal cultural knowledge. Here's Pat. Like I said, some stations have tried really hard to have a good working relationship with the people. Um, generally, if if it's like that, it's good. But, I mean, there have been other cases where it hasn't been so good. As an approved form of secondary use, there isn't a requirement to seek permission from Aboriginal traditional owners to undertake tourism on a pastoral lease. This includes on stations covered by native title claims, many of which contain important Aboriginal cultural sites. Whether or not Aboriginal people are involved in showing tourists these sites and paid appropriately is very much up to the pastoralists to decide. As you might imagine, this has been pretty controversial and puts yet another strain on relations between Aboriginal people and those non-Aboriginal people who own the stations. While station owners like Pat and Peter have shared histories and friendships with Aboriginal communities and a sense of responsibility to those people, things are changing. Many intergenerational station owners on the Gibb are moving on. The Lacey's retired in the early 2010s, making the decision to sell Mount Elizabeth. For Peter, this meant leaving the place where he'd lived most of his life. Yeah, well, I don't know. I just um, got it, got it a bit, bit too hard. It's a young man's game, chasing wild cattle, and uh, finding it hard to get staff. Um, and the cattle prices at the time was um, depressed, and we're making more money out of tourism than cattle at some stage. Then began a long process of finding a buyer for what is such a remote station. It became evident pretty quickly that the buyer would be an overseas-based investment company rather than a family that would live like the Lacey's had done at the station. I, I didn't really want to sell to overseas interest. They're the only ones that came up with the money. I'd rather sell to the local people. But we needed the money to get out. It was a hard decision, us. I still haven't settled. <laughs> I'm slowly dying, I think. <laughs> it's 
feel like an old gum tree you try to transplant, you know? <laughs> Never take. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to upset you or probe you, but maybe in, instead of the sad things, can I ask about like what it means to grow up on a station and for it to be home? Mm. But I don't want to upset you. It mm. even makes me feel a bit emotional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What Peter and Pat were worried about, what they still worry about, is what the change of ownership would mean for the local Aboriginal people living at the community of Dodnan on the station. Yeah, well, Peter just said to them, you know, I want to know that whoever buys Mount Elizabeth will maintain a relationship with the community because they are part of Mount Elizabeth. They've been there for a long, long time, since the days they came out of the bush, their families and grandchildren, and, you know, don't want them just to be cut off. The Lacey's eventually sold the station in 2018 and moved into Kununurra, a town 400 kilometres away. As it turned out, they had good reason to be worried about how the new owners would negotiate a relationship with local Aboriginal people. Pat tells me she's heard some unsettling news about the new owners at Mount Elizabeth. It was known that some of the community members from Mount Elizabeth had actually said to someone, oh, they don't want us, they don't want us working for them or anything like that. And we were shocked to hear that. As well as missing out on work opportunities, new owners coming onto stations have other kinds of impacts on Aboriginal people. One example is that Aboriginal people are often hesitant to ask permission from unfamiliar pastoralists to enter onto the stations where they have native title rights. Sometimes pastoralists lock gates on their stations or don't return phone calls of Aboriginal people who are trying to notify them that they want to get on country. Partly to guard against this, Peter excised a parcel of land from the pastoral lease for the Aboriginal community. This means the community is recognised by government as independent from the privately owned station. This means they're eligible for Australian government funding, including for housing and basic services. It also means that they won't have to negotiate with any future pastoral leaseholders to live there on their own land. Back in Wyndham, Donald has been part of efforts to rejuvenate the cattle business at Karunji Station. Karunji was purchased by the Indigenous Land Corporation in 1999 with the intention of handing it back to the Nyaranyan traditional owners. Since that time, a number of non-Indigenous managers have lived at the station, but none have remained for longer than a year or two. It's pretty remote out there. Half the year, the homestead is cut off to the outside world because of the monsoon rains. It's a challenge to get skilled workers prepared to live in what are pretty basic conditions, with no mobile phone and internet reception. The nearest town is more than three hours' drive. You gotta be in it to win it. You gotta be in that life. You gotta have a success for it. Otherwise, you're no good. No good putting on a cowboy hat and boot because it don't work. It doesn't work. That's such a significant portion of Nyaranyan land in the Kimberley is covered by pastoral leases means that it will necessarily form part of their future. And Nyaranyan people have high hopes to develop enterprises on their country. 
But the history of the cattle industry casts a long shadow over relations with Aboriginal people. Around Australia, over 400 native title claims have recognised Indigenous rights to land and seas. This means that around 40% of the Australian landmass is now covered by what we tend to think of as successful native title claims. These outcomes show just how committed Indigenous people are in demonstrating their connections to country and to achieving recognition. But the Kimberley example leaves me wondering, what more can be done to ensure that this recognition can be used to realise Aboriginal people's aspirations? Nyonyan people have had their underlying native title rights recognised but pastoral leases and tourist enterprises still take precedence. That seems pretty unfair. All of this raises questions, not just for the Kimberley, but for other parts of the country where most Australians live. This includes in cities and towns where other kinds of land tenure exist. If settler property rights still override Aboriginal native title rights, then the violence of the colonial past is allowed to continue unabated in the present. What kind of coexistence is that? The Welcome Podcast is based in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Nam is also known as Melbourne, Australia. This episode was produced by Dr. Cameo Daly. It was recorded on the unceded lands of the Narinian and the Bolangara people, Kimberley region of Australia. Script supervision and editing by James Melsom. Field assistance by David Chuckman and Rodney Wovadich. Theme music composed by John Bartley. Special thanks to Donald Campbell, Peter and Pat Lacey, Christine McLaughlin, Ida Moore and Logan and Larissa Walker. If you liked this show and if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It helps spread the word about the show and we really appreciate it.